James LaFont, author, fighter, and anthropologist of all things urban and unseen by the aspirational and increasingly disconnected bourgeois classes of American cities, rejoins the crew tonight for a much overdue conversation. Since we last spoke, James has traveled and lived in various cities across the country, spent a night on the streets of Manhattan, and even managed to train a few listeners to the podcast on hand-to-hand combat and mixed martial arts. Always insightful and a pleasure to talk to, James remains one of the most honest and perceptive members of the growing class of people looking up at the decaying mass that is Western civilization and wondering if their time might be better spent maneuvering horizontally rather than vertically. I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been ideal. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Nick, joined today by Adam and Hans. How are you guys doing? Hey, this is Adam. Apparently there was confusion. Hans, you're next. Hello, this is Hans. <laughs> okay, now that that's out of the way. We are joined by our most frequent returning guest, whom we have not talked to in a little bit, and the substance of today's episode will be checking in with the always interesting James LaFond. How are you tonight, James? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. It's nice to be on. It's been maybe, geez, probably almost half a year since we've spoken last, at least by my rememberings. I don't know. I could be wrong. But... I believe the last time we spoke was... It was white about white slavery. slavery, called it the Ivory Tower. Yeah, okay. So that was the last episode that we had spoken on. That was some time ago. So tentative topic, per se, though I'm sure we'll uh, get to talking about well, what James has been working on as far as... Oh, damn. Okay. Whew. All right. Well, uh, be that as it may, we're, we're happy to have you back, James. And why don't you tell the listeners, some of whom I, I understand you've been in touch with, which I'm happy to hear... Well, but why don't you tell everyone what you've been up to lately? Oh, I've, the past couple of months, I've been kicking around the mid-Atlantic region of the East Coast, uh, doing a lot of coaching, including coaching some of the 20th century readers who contacted me, and uh, that was very nice. And uh, I'm working on finishing up... Uh, a giant military history book that is now going to be a series of four military history books. And uh, they'll hopefully all four be done by the end of October. Um, so uh, that's kind of the sinkhole that my brain's been in. I'm still doing uh, probably about six chapters a week on uh, the Plantation America white slavery stuff, uh, which is a kind of like a minimal treatment of the subject for the four different books that I'm simultaneously writing to finish the series. So 
I'll try to make sure I bury my editor with the next two phone books around January on that subject. Uh, that's uh, that's the main thrust of uh, what's been going on. I'm very thankful to have uh, a number of readers who have been putting me up. I've been, uh, since the last time we talked, actually, uh, the last week I lived in the Baltimore area was when we did the Ivory Tower uh, White Slavery uh, podcast. And since then, I've been homeless. I've, but uh, I've only actually slept on the street once, which was, I think, uh, what, June the 9th, I slept on the corner of 14th and 6th in Manhattan on a sidewalk under the window of the GNC store. Uh, other than that, I haven't actually been without a place indoors to sleep. I've uh, been living in various garages and, and things. I like how you pick like the healthiest place in New York to sleep on the street. Dude, it was such a nightmare trying to find a place to sleep. You know, the, I wanted to go to this 24 hours McDonald's and sit in there and drink coffee. And, but my my former ability to stay awake forever has deserted me over the past year. So I was starting to nod off and the, the rent-a-cop at the McDonald's was looking at me sideways. And I figured I would have to commit suicide if I actually got ejected from a McDonald's by a rent-a-cop. So I went out looking for a place to sleep and avoided some goon cops that were rousting homeless guys in a nice way and being condescended to by a police officer would, again, that would be another fate worse than death. I, I was at Chelsea and I finally found a nice place to sleep against a wall and I walk across the street and there's three people having a simultaneous wardrobe malfunction. All three of their trousers were down around their ankles. Uh, and the woman was in the middle and she, she was not standing upright, although she was on her feet. I didn't want to see that. So now I had to move. And I bumped into the five man squad of homeless guys that lived in that area. And they called one of them called me brother and another one complimented me on my nice backpack. They were nice fellas. And then I, uh, eventually found a place under the GNC store window because there was no bubble gum, urine, or feces stains there. And um, uh, every 10 minutes, this trash truck woke me up riding over the curb. I don't know why it just continuously circled the neighborhood. Liberty Ash Company, or maybe it was many versions of this trash truck. And then 5.10 in the morning, I wake up and this dog sniffing me after like a two-hour sleep. And there's this guy in boxers, flip-flops, uh, and a wife beater, uh, reading the newspaper and eating a bagel while his dog was sniffing me. So I got up and I walked down to uh, Union Park, and I slept for a couple hours with the bums in Union Park. That was very nice. Then I, then I made my appointment at another park, and... I'm never going to go to Manhattan again. It costs $7.50 to take a piss. You know, I mean, because there's no public bathroom anywhere. You got to go to an eatery and buy something. The soda's like $5. Uh, you know, so, uh, so <laughs> I'm done with New York. <laughs> I see one of my readers, uh, and he's a listener to this, um, this podcast. 
he uh, he met me at the park where I did the interview, and he got me on a Jersey Transit train out of uh, <laughs> uh, out of New York, and I, I made my escape, and I'm done. No, I'm not going not going back to that place. Can you even walk out of New York? Is that even possible? I guess you can take the Brooklyn Bridge. But then Brooklyn itself is kind of, you can't get off of that to New Jersey, I don't think. And it's like that movie Dark City. Like any of the transit you get on, it just, it, it doesn't actually leave the city. You can't just escape. Well, I was also going to say, couldn't you just like ride the train for seven hours and just sleep? I mean, I've seen plenty of people doing that. I guess you'd have to pay for it, but I mean, you know, our basketball American brothers. The only way out is if you jump the turnstiles. Rudy Giuliani to get you a bus ticket to San Francisco. That was the other thing, because you should see the toilets in San Francisco. I mean, they have like moving automated doors, okay, and then they they clean themselves after people are done because they had such a problem with it before. People were shooting up in there and sleeping in them. And, and people were making a mess. And so they had to, they didn't have to, but they decided to build these uh, like space age pods that you could, I've never been in one actually. I just, I just remember like watching it on the news when I was a kid, they were talking about building these stupid things. Uh, and they're, they're almost like uh, gold plated, like they're green with like this sort of a bronze um, kind of perimeter with railings and everything. They're, they're actually quite nice. I don't think you have to pay for them either. Uh, and I think if you get in on the program in San Francisco, it costs the city about forty thousand dollars per homeless person. Now I don't know how that's spread spread around because there's obviously different uh, different yeah. tiers of people, of course, that get in also on the privileges. Have, uh, I understand that in those the stalls they have Truvada dispensers. Yeah, I bet. There are a lot of those advertisements in Portland. It was hard to get away from uh, from that product. So what have you learned in your travels about the homeless situation in America? I was. It was interesting to me that uh, Portland and Manhattan were, they were very friendly places to be homeless. And I'm not used to that in Baltimore, uh, homeless men get hunted by gangs of feral youths and by uh, police. <laughs> so it's, it's very nasty. That's Baltimore City and the surrounding areas of Baltimore County. The uh, situation yep. in Salt Lake City was incredibly fascinating because uh, I found myself in the middle of Las Vegas trying to launch their homeless population at um, another city, which I think was Denver, Colorado, when I was in Salt Lake City. So uh, that was very fascinating. They will get bus tickets uh, and give them the, their homeless people and their drug addicts and give them these six packs of Insure drink and launch them at some other western city that's also in the east the destination city for homeless people being launched out of eastern cities tends to be virginia beach it's the end of the greyhound bus line and the last bus station 
is actually a gas station across from a library. And that library has become just like a homeless shelter. Uh, and uh, the uh, Portland, there, there's like really no police presence. Uh, I did see a couple of cops around there investigating car crimes and domestic violence in the, the southeast area I lived in. But as far as being out on patrol and having to worry about getting rousted by a cop, there wasn't any worry there. The police there do nothing. They're they're completely uh, for show. I mean, you know, the the famous stories uh, that have been coming out over the past few months about the riots and the protests that keep going on. I mean, they're they're given orders to effectively not interfere because, and I I quote or paraphrase quote, uh, it will incite more violence if the police actually engage with people who are fighting each other on the street. I mean, can can you believe that? I mean, they talked about that on... uh, I think it was well, Joe Rogan. The last I checked, the Portland police chief was a Negro female that used to be a cop in Oakland. That's fascinating. Uh, I have this. Uh, uh, I have noticed Baltimore County, which is uh, an area surrounding Baltimore City that is undergoing an epidemic of unreported violent crime. And um, forced housing, Uh, there's a uh, program we discussed before uh, where Baltimore County is being forced by the federal government to take large numbers of uh, uh, subsidized welfare families from the worst areas of Baltimore cities and settle them into the best areas of Baltimore County. There, they have uh, inducted a female police chief. there's uh, this is just a trend that you're going to see more of. You're going to see more uh, female police chiefs, and that's on top of having more uh, female mayors. I uh, I think this is just uh, PR. I don't think it's going to make a make a lot of difference, other than. Uh, uh, give the public the idea that the police are there for, for compassion. Uh, so this is uh, actually, we're taking a detour today because Nick's uh, connection is, is quite poor, unfortunately. So he's going to be able to type uh, questions and comments in the chat, and I will, on his behalf, try to uh, read them to James. Uh, so uh, so Nick, Nick is actually um, curious about this, and this reminds me of something that you had mentioned on your interview on Rebel Yell about how in societies run by women, they're actually more violent. But Nick's question is, uh, are women not more cruel than men, quote, unquote? Uh, that's an absolute affirmative. Uh, how do you measure female, that? It seems kind female of heads uh, of state reason they go to war uh, 30% more often than male heads of state uh, initiating war in fact where the, did you find that if, if you don't mind me digging into the details I mean are you talking about uh, like this, queens of countries like you know the Queen Victoria or something like where'd you get this couple number? nerds uh, wrote an article uh, a few years ago and one of my readers sent it to me and it was uh, it was from a liberal periodical, academic periodical, and they spent half of the article trying to explain 
away why this was, and they claimed it was because a queen would have war made upon her more often hmm. uh, by oppressive enemy male kings, and, and therefore she had to declare preemptive war. It was bullshit. Uh, one of the mechanisms behind that is the fact that the military is still run by men, and the men in the military will do, will do anything they can to start a war uh, under the queen so that they can prove themselves to the queen and hopefully become the mate of the queen, hopefully become the king. That's one of the things that's going on there. But as far as cruelty goes, all through plantation America, uh, the white slaves and the African slaves uh, and all of the slave narratives, uh, there is a common theme that the mistress is more cruel than the master. And uh, I think, and I've also seen this when I was a supermarket, when I worked in supermarkets, uh, uh, female department heads are always more likely to call for economic death for people underneath them than male department heads. There's very little compassion for the person who's supporting a family through their job from a female, where you'll see that from a male. Uh, part of it, I think, is just the cruelty that's engendered by being physically powerless. Indeed, in traditional societies where torture is part of their mode of warfare, particularly among the American Indians and the Berbers of North Africa, the uh, women would be put in charge of torturing enemy captives. Uh, the, the Tuaregs, uh, if they captured a French foreign legionnaire, they would give him to the women because the women would be more cruel and they've had less empathy for, uh, for the war fighter. And the same thing with the Native Americans. The women would be put in charge of torture if they wanted something uh, particularly horrific to happen. And I think it has to do with lack of empathy that's engendered by lack of actual power, of individual power to act unilaterally and impose their will through force. Do, do you think this is because the women who are in power are basically sociopaths like Hillary Clinton? And it's not necessarily the majority of women, but it's the women who choose to pursue a career in politics that seem to have that inferiority complex that you seem to be kind of describing and who are, in my experience, quite nasty and vindictive. I don't know if that's that's why. I Obviously, I know women who are extremely empathetic to people who are not their children and it drives me nuts a little bit sometimes because they seem to select people who are not of their their kind but um that's just a theory and then uh, nick had a question after that so well, what do you think nick noted in his in his note there that mm. uh traditionally women in power uh in earlier times were born to power and uh here we can make a contrast uh, that differed in the plantations. So you had the additional war engaged in by queens in Europe had a lot to do with the warrior caste underneath of them striving to earn their approval through war and encouraging it. Uh, it probably actually had uh, not a whole lot to do with any proclivities they had to be more aggressive. Uh, but in the plantations, uh, the goal was to outbreed the indigenous people so that you would have enough people to, uh, enough children to swamp them and to wipe out the natural environment 
and make the plantation environment, uh, basically turn it into the Middle East, turn a forest into a, a desiccated grassland. This, uh, so this would result in a wife dying after five to ten childbirths. Hmm. And a lot of these children would die themselves. That, uh, According to Increase Mather, the English during the Indian War in 1675, they suffered from smallpox just as badly as the Indians did. But they had a much larger population to absorb the losses. The, uh, what, what happens is you end up with a second wife, the stepmother. And this finds its way into folklore, the evil stepmother. And she is a woman, generally, that was a slave who was then purchased to replace the wife of a widower. And then she was elevated from abject servitude to mistress of a household of slaves. And if you look at people who don't have a lot of individual agency, for instance, when I would promote women or African-American men above their fellows, above other women and above other African-American men, we had a saying called throwing them under the bus. These people would always throw their own gender and their own race under the bus, bus maniacally. They would, uh, they would be very cruel. Uh, I had a black manager that was constantly trying to fire black men under him on my day off because he felt like they were a threat to him and he didn't trust his relationship with me because of the racial divide. So this is a lot of what goes into the extreme cruelty of the woman who runs a household, which would be uh, in plantation America, would be a small community or be equivalent to a small local company where there's between 20 and 100 people, uh, mostly under her rule while the husband is absent, dealing with other plantation owners and dealing with merchants and so forth. So um, it, it's, it, there's, there's various causes, but what will tend to make most women more cruel in the same situation as most men is their relative helplessness. They're not used to having personal power in their personal life. For instance, uh, they're twice as likely in the United States, the United Kingdom, to beat their children than are the fathers. And, of course, I've seen this amongst people on the street in Baltimore City. I've never seen... Uh, a man beat his child or even spanked his child in public. In, in that particular case, all the, time. the father is typically not around for, from what I understand. And so to use that as a statistic for women being more abusive to children, oh, I mean, I, I would agree, obviously, in, in just practical terms in that area. But what you'd want to do if you're collecting the statistics seems to be you would ha want to have households that only have both men and women, because then you can uh, clearly the see work, the same environment and what, who does you know the beating more often. What I'm referencing is, I think it's a Kaiser study. If you look at Stefan Molyneux from about five years ago, it's called a bomb in the brain series where he goes through, where he's interviewing people about drug addiction and dysfunction. And uh, he, he spent the whole, uh, one whole episode was on domestic violence and so you can look up wherever they got the statistics for that on women beating their uh, their children more often than men okay. but certainly it's going to have something to do with the fact that uh you've got a lot of guys aren't home to beat the shit out of their kids single motherhood uh, is, is a is a 
I mean, in my opinion, it's a problem. I mean, there's, I don't know. Apparently there are people are championing single motherhood as, as a triumph of something, but I, I can't quite find a source on that. And I haven't really seen people actually seem to be proud of it. They, they seem to be more defensive of it. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, well, you know, she's doing the best she can kind of thing. But I think, um, I think it's unfortunate when you have, you know, only a single parent in the house. Uh, Nick says, um, and they are especially cruel to other women, especially younger, prettier women. The historical figure who best represents this is Elizabeth Bath, Bath, Bathory. I have not heard of Elizabeth. Yes, I'm I'm familiar with that woman. She was was bathing in the blood of uh, peasant girls uh, to try to maintain her youth and was actually ended up locked locked in uh, her, uh, her tower. Right. And fed through a slit for the for the end of her life after she was uh, regarded as being guilty of these crimes. Again, plantation America is full of this. Uh, the sons of a pretty slave girl uh, uh, being attacked constantly by the wife of uh, of the father who was the plantation owner. Moses Roper's wife starts out. He was a quadroon. He was uh, looks like he was seventy five percent Caucasian, twenty five percent African. Uh, his life started out with the mistress of the house coming in with a knife and a club while the midwife was delivering him and trying to kill him as he came out of the womb. Uh, and it, this is just uh, th- this is extremely common uh, behavior. There's also uh, Another legacy of plantation America that you find in places like Baltimore, where you have roughly 25 black women murdered every year by men. And these men are usually fulfilling contracts um, that are put out by women. Women will have will actually hire men and also have sex with these men in order to convince them to kill a romantic rival. This is extremely common. And the portion of America that, uh, that best reflects what plantation America was like, which is uh, um, the people that were last caught up in it. Right. And, uh, and they don't have evolved much out of the mindset. <clears throat> Nick says, uh, and maybe we can get off women and cruelty after this, uh, but he says power can never give women what they want. Uh, most, which is youth. <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's not not well true. Said. Uh, I can't stop that. <laughs> <laughs> what I've noticed too is that um, older women, in particular, are a lot nicer to me than younger women. I mean, it depends on what age. Obviously, like if they're little kids, I mean, they're just they're just hi. You know, they, you walk down the street, they're super friendly, and everything is is. Um, ponies and lollipops in the world but once they hit that sexual peak you know whatever you want to put put age you want to put that on they they figure out they have a lot of power and they have to become very very careful about whom they speak to but when they they lose it they get older in other words uh they're they get i I assume they get a little bit lonely and they're they're much much nicer much nicer than their daughters for example this is true, and I have, uh, I have one last thing about the women and cruelty thing. I've had five specific women that I've been involved with uh, 
uh, along with their children and their grandchildren, including a woman I married and, and had children with, uh, have, uh, and I can add to this, uh, women in my family uh, acting cruel to other women in my family and asking me to rescue the both of them from the situation because they lack the mental strength to not go there, to not be mean, to not attack, whether it's verbal or physical. I've had numerous women in my family in tears ask me if I could sort out the situation between them and their sister, them and their cousin, them and their mother. And then there's the ladies that I've dated that want me to talk to their children and their grandchildren because they feel like the only recourse left to them is to smack the shit out of this kid and they know that's wrong or they or they've hit the kid and then they feel bad about it and they want me to patch it up simply because they lack the mental strength that a man's going to develop when he's out there dealing with other men i developed it uh dealing with men who were trying to commit crimes against me if i have five negroes that ask me to step into the mouth of an alley with them uh if if i mouth off and accuse them of having bad attentions against me, well, then they'll come out of the alley and they'll get me, okay? It's, it's a close to the best game you've got to play when you're dealing with men who have the ability to use force against you, and particularly when you have the ability to use force, and you know that if you go there, then you're going down a real dark road that you can't get out of, for instance, ending up in jail or in prison. I, I had a conversation like this today, I talked to, uh, uh, there's uh, a family where I'm involved in th with three generations of females. I date the grandmother, and I'm kind of like an advisor to the mother, and I'm, a, uh, I'm like a grandfather uh, to the granddaughter. And I had a conversation with the grandmother today while uh, the granddaughter was misbehaving. And as soon as the granddaughter found out that I was on the other side of the phone, she piped up, I'm being good, I'm being good. <laughs> and I... I have no authority to punish this person, and she probably couldn't imagine a world in which I would punish her because I'm like her playmate. But she just wants to uh, to have my approval. In fact, uh, her mother and grandmother think maybe it's just the tone of just the fact that I have a deep voice, and it's a male voice, and it comforts her when I when I sleep in the living room uh, when I go to visit them. The girl will come down from her bedroom and she'll sleep in the chair next to the couch I'm in because she said that my snoring keeps the monsters away. You know, so there's something that's comforting about a masculine presence to, you know, these females of all ages that, you know, most of them won't even admit to unless they're older or unless they're innocent children. So, you know. <laughs> So you you took um, you took some time to travel, obviously, and you were homeless one of those days, which actually doesn't sound too bad. I've um, I've taken a few cool. journeys, yeah, myself, and oftentimes the best learning experiences, if obviously you don't get hurt, are the ones where you're in those kind of corners of society and nobody really talks about them in polite society, uh, and you really see people's intentions when all of the bullshit is stripped away all the money and all the sort of uh expectations that other people put on them you know when you're dealing with people who are on the street they're typically 
Uh, they're not trying to impress the boss. They're not trying to impress the girlfriend. They're basically just out for what they want and need. And it's it's a much more kind of basic level interaction you might have. Um, I don't know. Did you, So <laughs> you're obviously not one of the homeless people class, whatever you want to call that. But did they get a sense for you being not one of them or did they, did they like you? I mean, how, how was that interaction? I'm very curious about this. Uh, I've had a couple of legit homeless people think that I was one of them. Uh, and, and they acted, uh, you know, hesitantly welcoming, Yeah. you know, hoping that I was going to move on and wasn't going to cut into their territory. Right. On the trains, I, I travel mostly on trains. Um, it's difficult for me. You know, everything I own goes into one backpack. And um, I, I'll wear extra clothes when I'm on the train. So I'll wear a pair of jeans. And then over top of it, I'll have this torn up pair of camouflage cargo shorts. And I look like hell. Uh, but it's nice to have all these pockets in it. And a lot of the train patrons, particularly like the millennial males, will act really terrified of me i mean i had this one guy just almost went into some kind of embolism because i was sitting next to him and he started crying and he had to scramble out of the seat this was out, outside of harrisburg pennsylvania this is a grown man uh, yeah he, he was probably about 29 yeah he was in tears because i was i was like in his space and i guess he had some kind of testosterone allergy the, the um but one thing i found is that um when you appear to be, uh, first of all, uh, a lot of people on trains travel as families and in pairs. The, the cost incentive is to travel in a pair. And it, your ticket will literally cost, cost you uh, like 30% to 50% less if you travel with somebody else. Uh, so there's not very many people traveling by themselves. And the... Uh, uh, the people that are very lonely, like the elderly people that are traveling by themselves, uh, they would seek me out. And I've had a few people told me their life stories, and I've recorded them on my, uh, on my for my travel writing website, which is under a different name. And that's been really touching. The the, uh, the nicest thing that happened to me is on the the train from Portland, Oregon, to. Uh, to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, there was this very beautiful redheaded woman that was probably one of the best looking women I've seen in my life. I suppose she's in her late twenties and she was so nice looking. I tried not to look at her, you know, a creepy guy with one eye, like looking at a woman. I didn't want to make her feel uncomfortable. So I did everything I could not to look at this chick. She actually, she could tell I wasn't feeling well at a certain point. And she came down into the cargo area of the train to see if I was okay. Uh, you know, and I just told her that I was, uh, that I was all right. And it turns out she was meeting her father, who was about my age, in Pittsburgh. And then she wished me a good trip when he picked her up. Uh, and she was actually looking out for me. She had some, I guess, uh, maybe her dad has some health problems. Um, she probably thought I had blood, blood pressure problems or something, but I was just having trouble sitting for so long because of uh, hip injuries. So I was going downstairs to stretch. So that was nice. So I've had, just from appearing to be the... Uh, the less well-off person on the train. Uh, I've had some positive interactions with people, and, and that, that's rather nice. 
Nick would like to know the difference between Negro and homeless ecosystems. Good, good word choice, Nick. He would like to. Could you repeat that to me, Anna? Yeah. What are the differences between the Negro and homeless ecosystems? Oh uh, well, the homeless ecosystem does not survive long when it clashes with the the, uh, the Negropolis. It just it just doesn't work. The uh, I've spent some time at bus stops that have been turned into suburban homeless shelters by people fleeing the Holocaust of uh, of homelessness in Baltimore City while they're being hunted uh, by these uh, by these feral children that are only homeless while their mother is entertaining their paramours in order to get her weed and her liquor. So mama will kick them out uh, between midnight when Tyrone finally gets to her place and let's say four in the morning when she finally kicks Tyrone out because the weed smoked up and the liquor's drunk up. And for that period of time, these, uh, these young uh, males uh, often packs of up to four brothers and their friends and cousins will be effectively homeless in the middle of the night and, and looking... They've just been made homeless in the middle of the night by a man they don't know coming into their household. So then they go out and they attack random men. So um, it's it's not it's not good to be a homeless dude uh, in a uh, in a necropolis. It's dangerous. So you you spent some time traveling the west, and then you're back in the east. Do you have intentions to do that again, or where do you, where do you consider home these days? Uh, my home's my backpack. That's how I conceive of it. Um, the uh, I'm uh, I'm going to be out west uh, for a couple of months this year, and then uh, you know for maybe three or four months next year if everything goes right, and. Um, the, uh, the, the East is not very nice. The East is always more harrowing. Uh, I was uh, mistaken for a Hell's Angels fixer by some uh, pagan, uh, pagan and Aryan Brotherhood uh, people at a bar in a small town in Pennsylvania and also by a very scary police presence. Uh, in a uh, in a municipality outside of that town, where uh, I was told by a reliable source that over half of the police in that department are pagan affiliates. They're on the pay- payroll because the pagans control that uh, um, the, the the drug trade there, and their main enemies in this area, of the country, are the Hell's Angels. So it was kind of I guess maybe that was karmic justice there that I was targeted for violence for possibly being a hell's angel uh, because I'm being picked up and dropped off by uh, by young tattooed guys at various places and I'm like an older bald bearded guy you know so uh, uh, given how much uh, heat one of my interview subjects underwent after your uh, hell's angels podcast uh, aired uh, and actually that got a record number of dislikes because their PR section got a hold of that podcast 
did what they could to try to dislike it. And they actually threatened the one guy that I interviewed, um, you know, to get me to retract this article that I had posted associated with that. So, so maybe I deserved that, uh, you know, that one, one band of big hairy biker faggots would, uh, think that I was a member of another band of big hairy biker faggots. I don't know. Uh, so it's, and, and, and the mass transit people like the train station people and everything, they're so kind and helpful in the West and they tend to be nasty bureaucratic type, uh, people of, uh, sub-Saharan extraction in the East. Um, it's just everything is better in the West. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to getting back out there. But I have a lot of coaching responsibilities in the East, so it, it keeps pulling me back. And I, I wonder how much you're sort of waiting Baltimore, though, as the East Coast, because it depends on where you are. Like My general impression of the East Coast is it's it's just super crowded, and th- but there are big differences between let's say north carolina and maryland and maryland between new jersey and new jersey and new york and new york and boston i mean there's there's just differences and it's just they're even though it's so close together because things are so old there and the transportation back in the day was not very quick you can go today very quickly between places that have somewhat distinct cultures and out in the west I would say the culture is much more homogenous and however there are pockets of you know urban areas of the west that you do run into this type of thing and it's typically where you know the black population settled during the second world war to work in the the armaments industry and the the shipbuilding and the aerospace industries uh in the west coast and Oakland, California is a rough place to be. Uh, South Central LA obviously was historically black and it's become Hispanic, but that's not much of an improvement, unfortunately. And the, the surliness of the, uh, the bureaucratic staff, as you so eloquently kind of referred to just now, I, I don't know. Like I, I think it, it, it really kind of depends on how much money is in the city because I remember having very decent interactions with uh black people in new york city for some reason i just i just that stuck out to me uh but if you go to you know the uh new haven or if you go to um what's the city in delaware that that is uh the big one wilmington or something like that i I can't remember but they're so so tiny over there they all kind of blend together to me but delaware seemed rough i think i've been able to manage to skip baltimore but it just seems like the poor areas are really, really tough. Uh, and, you know, we have we have the DMV out here, too. It's not so much, you know, like you're just getting that in the East Coast. That's pretty much a lock in the in the black, black employment a, department. <laughs> so. Most of my time in the East, since I talked to you last, has not been in Baltimore, even in the Baltimore area. Okay. Pennsylvania and New Jersey and a little bit in New York and Chicago. Now, um, the, uh, I did have somebody ask me about uh, how I was treated in different parts of the country, and I found a correlation that uh, west of the Mississippi, the only people that treated me poorly were white women and African Americans. That's it. No Asian, no Latino, and... Uh, 
no Caucasian man ever treated me poorly or aggressively west of the Mississippi. Okay, but so how that, is it in in east of the Mississippi? East of the Mississippi, most of the African American people will be uh, will be nasty, and then you'll get a level of nastiness out of uh, European American people that's uh, about at the level that you get out of the African Americans in Portland. Uh, <laughs> I did find in Portland that. Uh, about two thirds of my African American interactions were good, and about one third were not. And um, that's a uh, that that's you know that's not that that's not that bad uh, compared to a place like Baltimore. And see these all these small towns in Pennsylvania and Delaware, they're like mini Baltimores. There's uh, there's always a part of them that's just like a nasty slice of East Baltimore or West Baltimore that's just like stuck in the middle of the woods because the local municipalities have sought federal uh, dollars by importing poverty. And you have uh, a, a lot of people that have been siphoned out of Baltimore, Philadelphia, and, uh, and New York uh, in order to get the welfare dollar into small towns. You know, so so you have that. And now, with the Amtrak people, uh, specifically, uh, Amtrak people in the East behind the counter, I won't buy a ticket in the East because it's almost always an African American woman behind the counter, and she'll make me do all the work, and I won't be able to get the best deal that I can, and it'll take a long while, and she'll be snapping at me a lot. But in the West, it's usually always uh, either an African-American man or uh, a white woman behind the counter, and they'll be very helpful. They'll get it done. And as soon as I tell them what I want, it's done almost immediately, and they give me the best deal possible. So I go online to get my train tickets in the east, and then when I get into the west to get my ticket back, I will do that at the station because the people were so helpful. Um, you know, so and I've only ran into one nasty Amtrak employee uh, uh, on the actual trains, and that was a a very uh, a a, uh, a very bitter uh, man filled with racial hatred. Uh, so that was an exception. On the actual trains, most of the Amtrak people were great. Yeah, Amtrak is kind of a unique experience i would assume these days i've never taken it i mean it's much more of a thing by the way in the east coast i think actually for commuting it's it's a legit train business that actually well uh, with the exception of the excella i think which flew off the tracks a few years ago um can't even do that right anymore it's a stupid train but uh they actually have legitimate economic justification for having that train system there even though it's sort of owned by the government but out west it's basically just pure subsidy and people who take it i think are just going on vacation i don't know if you noticed the sort of clientele differences uh, most of the people uh were visiting family uh or going on vacation uh on the trains that, that are west of chicago and there's a lot of amish people use the trains there's been at least one amish family on every train uh, that I've been on heading to points west of Pittsburgh. And 
the uh, uh, some of the trains are what are called party trains, where uh, a whole wedding party of 50 people. Uh, they were leaving Whitefish, Montana, where uh, a guy that was a retired park ranger who pioneered a grizzly bear cowering system. All of his college friends, all of his university friends went to a party out there in Whitefish and the train going from Whitefish to Chicago uh, was just full of these people partying on the train. And a lot of it's the same with the train that goes through the beautiful portion of the Rockies between Denver mm -hmm. and Salt Lake City. Yeah. Uh, you would have a lot of people that were vacationing on there. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's something that uh, people will actually blog about uh, because it's such a novelty today. I mean, it's kind of astonishing to think of it in some way that that has become basically just a... a it's like you go to Disneyland and they have uh, these kind of faux trains set up for people to kind of gawk at, like you're at a zoo or something. Uh, but that, that was a real part of the development of the West, ironically. It was just the Transcontinental Railroad and all the cities that built up around it, Salt Lake you know, in particular, and it was a big, big deal. And that's how you got around because the West is a big place and you got to have some way of traveling over these big mountains. But today with the automobile and the airplane, it's just, it's just falling apart. Um, to a lot of enthusiasts chagrin, but I think for most people it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's just kind of an interesting part of history and how that all weaves together. It's been a convenient way for me to get around since I don't have uh, uh, tight time uh, requirements. And I managed to get from Portland, Oregon to Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania on $183 on the train. And it was, uh, it was a pleasant ride with nice scenery. Wait, so and, and can you sleep on the train with that, with that amount of money? Do they give you I don't get a sleeper sitting in a coach seat, but that coach seat is, uh, you know, it's more comfortable than a lot of places I've slept. And what I, I, what I also do is I like spending the night in the viewing car and sitting out there and uh, writing, uh, uh, reading and writing. Uh, at night as the, you know, the darkened back end of America goes by. And the other thing is, is I snore. So, uh, I, I was, uh, I've, I've gone out and slept, uh, in that, uh, in that viewing car to spare the person next to me. The funny thing was, is when I was coming back from Salt Lake city to Washington, DC, I ended up sitting next to, uh, an aging, uh, Russian hooker. So she was still charming, I guess about 45 years old. And how, uh, did, how did you establish she's a hooker, first of all? Oh, her, um, her phone conversation. Oh, okay. uh, and, and she was a very practical traveler. And I apologize. I fell asleep next to her and I caught myself snoring. So, and it woke me up and I apologized to her. And she just grinned at me and kind of touched me with the back of her hand. And she said, don't worry, I can sleep through anything. <laughs> <laughs> she was a cutie. <laughs> you know, uh, some of the most real conversations you probably can have are with a hooker. I wouldn't recommend seeking them out, but it's like, you know, they've seen it all. They've seen the top, the bottom, everything. Uh, 
I don't know what they haven't seen. <laughs> yeah, so uh, um, I really I like the trains, and the other thing is is um, it, it, when you're going through rough terrain on the train, you will get to see things that you cannot see from any road. You'll right. get vantage points sometimes that are the same, sometimes that are overlooking the road, but sometimes where no road uh, is. Mm-hmm. And one, uh, the most beautiful stretch is, uh, is in Colorado on the California Zephyr. But I would say number two would be the, uh, the Capital Limited train. When it leaves Pittsburgh to go to Washington, D.C., it follows the Monongahela River and other rivers through Pennsylvania, Maryland, and West Virginia. And the entire time the train tracks are right next to the rivers that were used to float the materials that were used to build the railroad back in the day. And you're right on the top of the Allegheny Mountains right there. That mm-hmm. was probably the second most beautiful uh, part of the train trip. Yeah, I mean, the the mountains in the east are quite beautiful. I mean, the, the forests are different. They're more deciduous, if I'm not mistaken. And you get those colors in the fall that you don't really get out in the west, which is predominantly an evergreen scenery where you have pine trees, spruces, you know, big uh, redwoods in California, that sort of thing. But you don't have that that seasonal beauty that you get, I think, in the East Coast. Right. I, I like them both a lot. And I plan on taking trains to more different places and getting to see some of the scenery. So is it that you just, you know people in the East Coast with your fighting, uh, your combat background that you want to stay close to the, the gyms and the places that you, people hang well, out? Don't be, well, different guys have their own fighting schedules, for instance. I had to be back for, two of my guys had a fight on, uh, I think it was May 11th, so I had to be back at a certain time for that. And, uh, uh one of those guys and another guy are going to have a fight in mid to late October. So, uh, in a couple of weeks I head out West again, but I need to be back in early October so I can help them for like their last week or two at camp and be there for their fight. Right. Nick says, if you want good material for your writing, take the Greyhound, the bus. I don't know if you can get the same prices, but, uh, there's probably something to that. I, I've taken I've taken the Greyhound locally in the East uh, uh, before, and it was interesting. I found in the West, looking at prices, uh, and it might be the same thing in the East now, if you're traveling a great distance, uh, uh, the train uh, gave you a better time and a better price. So I, um, you know, that's why I've <laughs> I've stayed with the, the train. and. The main thing I do on the train is read. I read seven books on the way back from Portland on the train uh, and in the train station. So that did a lot to catch me up on my reading. And I usually meet one or two interesting people on the trains. And it's enough for me. So the trains have been a combination of meditation and reading and and then like tertiary uh, meeting an interesting person here. Well, I mentioned to you before the call that my first day back into Baltimore, I was threatened by 
a hood rat with a violence. My, it was 20 hours into Baltimore. I was threatened. By did, did I hear you right on that call uh, with the Rebel Yo guys that you were? You said you were armed. What does that mean? Uh, uh, when when this uh, when this happened when when I was when I was threatened by the hood rat. Yeah, if you want to talk about it, you don't have to. But. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm always armed, and uh, I've and sometimes it's only a pen. Uh, but I've used pens and pebble, pencils successfully as weapons before. Okay, because most and, people wouldn't consider having a Bic ballpoint in their pocket armed, but so just, just to give people an introduction again to your sort of skill set. Yeah, my, my favorite pen, my favorite weaponized pen, since I, I can't really afford like the Smith & Wesson uh, combat pen, uh, is this Forma. Uh, pen that I get three for a dollar at uh, Dollar Tree. Anywhere in the country. <laughs> uh, I like that. I keep three of them tacked to the outside of my backpack. And uh, depending on where I'm at, I'll have a, a folding knife or a hand bow. A hand bow is, uh, you know, a seven to eight inch long, half inch thick uh, hardwood stick. Uh, that's a good. Uh, good weapon of desperation okay and uh, that's uh that, that's generally what i uh, that's generally what i have and i had my cargo shorts on then so yeah i probably had the handbow uh in my pocket at the time you ever had to use it the, the handbow for a weapon no no i've never had to use that up i've used the pens but i've never actually uh, gotten a, a chance to use the handbow which is the way it goes, you know. I do all kinds of training with a handbow, and you know, it, it, you know, it never seems to be present for when stuff goes down, you know. But uh, that's, I guess, that's one of the reasons why I'm enamored of the pen. The pen always seems to be there when you need it. So, James, uh, I mentioned to you before the call that I've been doing some um, martial arts. You know, I'm not going to specify if just for purposes of opsec, if you want to use that loaded term, but. Basically, um, I heard you comment, uh, and, and I get it, but I, I heard you comment on the Rebel Yell interview that uh, there's sort of these schools out there that'll that'll basically put you through the the credit card rigor of spending three years of your life to get, get a belt, and then you come out at the end of it, and you basically know a lot of uh, sport fighting, but you don't really know actually street fighting. So I wanted to get your your thoughts on that and i don't know if you have any advice but well not and not just for you adam let's get also and uh, my audio comes in and out so i apologize to the listeners i as adam mentioned i i do luna it's my remote place uh so i've been struggling with this lately to be quite honest however what i want to do is just not just for adam's sake but for our listeners broadly speaking what advice can you have for them as to how they can put their training to the most efficient use. Okay. Uh, the biggest problem is going to be context. Uh, you can get, you can go to, uh, in any decent sized town, you can get good Brazilian jiu-jitsu training uh, that's going to uh, help you deal with a grappling situation. But, 
their context is going to be all wrong and it's going to get you killed in a self-defense situation. So you can't allow yourself to get sucked into joining the BJJ club thinking as it will be promoted to you that it has the answer for everything because it's the greatest martial arts marketing ploy in human history and it will get you killed. But it's very useful to know BJJ if somebody grabs you or if somebody's attacking you and you need to grab them. So you need to get your fundamentals and not get brainwashed by the people that are the apex uh, economic predators in the martial arts marketplace. Krav Maga is another thing that is just a big cash machine. And uh, I don't think that we will surprise any of our right. listeners. <laughs> Krav Maga. Yeah, it's just quick uh, intro. It's that's a, it, that's the Israeli self-defense right. system. Why is it a why is it bullshit? Why is it a cash machine? I've never I mean, I've never I've never done it. But I've I've I've, I've, I've done it. it I real. I didn't think it was total bullshit. I just the people running it obviously are the usual suspects, but I I don't know in terms of its uh they they teach it in the US Marine Corps, I believe. I don't know how much those guys take it seriously, but it used to be um it used to I think it became big um after 9/11. I'm not. I'm not kidding. It, I noticed yeah, this when I was no growing surprise. up. I never heard uh, the phrase Krav Maga until like 2004, 2005. But even before 9/11, when I was a kid, I always heard karate, taekwondo, jujitsu, boxing, brawling. Even heard mixed martial arts. Um, and I was in karate and taekwondo as a kid and teenager, but uh, I never heard of Krav Maga, or even understood that the Israelis had a, allegedly had a fighting style until like 2005 and i want to say it became big because of 9-11 and everyone bought yeah. into this israeli anti-terrorism meme oh yeah big time i remember well, after it has 9 the same mystique were... as you see it in the firearms training communities where anything that is israeli comes with a some kind of premium attached to it that this is this is sound because you're at Average burger is under the impression that like Israelis are the IDF is out there like defending women and children while having like one arm bleeding out and they're having to like fend off hordes of Hezbollah or something. When the reality is they're just shooting Palestinian head and. Um, no, it's total. It's totally connected. I mean, the nine eleven thing glorified the Israelis. But, uh, I was I was going to say the. Uh, the El Al airline was touted as the model for all U.S. airlines going forward because they have on board in all flights a plainclothes uh, security officer in case there's a hijacking or some other event like presumably what we're told about 9-11. Um, but I think it's you know a combination of that and just Fox News ramping up this crap and things Nick's mentioning as well. I mean, yeah, there's a mistake. But, uh on the subject to what James is saying about context, it is interesting, though, because Krav Maga is something that came about with modern firearms. It is supposedly a martial arts discipline that incorporates uh, the changes that have from and the, the modern and modern weaponry in particular. And it is when you look at the history of martial arts. You talk about something like jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu had, in its context, it was specifically a grappling heart that came from dealing with head armor. 
So I wonder, you know, what if you're going to have a systematized martial art, what it would look like in the modern age, considering you're not to deal with armor. Uh, Krav Maga, the first time I heard about Krav Maga was in 1978. And uh, it was in reference to uh, programs from the 1960s. And it was uh, really... Uh, Initially, it was developed by this uh, older, small, bald fellow as a means to train uh, soldiers to defend themselves uh, against uh, people who would try to abduct them from their barracks. For instance, he had techniques for how to respond when you're, uh, when you're awakened by the muzzle of a gun pressed to your head. It was very extremely practical, no bullshit stuff. Uh, then in the early 2000s, um, an, a successful MMA fighter who ended up becoming the UFC welterweight champion, I think for maybe one title defense, uh, Carlos Newton, who was a popular fighter in Japan, he was trained by an Israeli martial arts instructor uh, who was working out of Canada. And... Uh, that had Carlos Newton's popularity and the fact that he was a, a very good grappler uh, and an MMA fighter, I think, put this idea of marketing uh, Krav Maga to the American public in the same way that BJJ was being marketed as uh, something that was associated with MMA athlete levels of fitness. And it, both of these things are targeted to the same suburban upper middle class uh, uh, group of consumers, uh, people who have never had experience with violence generally, who also want to look good and be in shape, and they want to be certain that they're practicing something that's either been tested in a prize-fighting context or in a military context. And what they did with Krav Maga to, uh, to facilitate this and to train up enough people in different areas of the country to make it a big successful franchise is that they grafted on to the original pure practicality of it, okay, which is now the stuff that you get to last, <laughs> just like it was with karate <laughs> uh, back in the day, is they've grafted on MMA conditioning and methodology and FMA, which is Filipino martial arts. So... A lot. They even use the red can or knee stick that's used for uh, sports stick fighting in the Philippines uh, as, uh, in, uh, as a tool in their curriculum. And uh, this is, it, it's, so what Krav Maga now is, is it's a marketing, uh, it's a marketing thing. And there is going to be a lot of practicality to it because there's a lot of practicality to MMA, there's a lot of practicality to FMA. Uh, they just had to have something that would uh, make their people feel like they didn't have to go to any place else to get their weapons, to get their grappling, to get their boxing in. Uh, but uh, anytime you do that, when you put everything under one umbrella, and this is true of MMA schools also, uh, for instance, in an MMA school, the boxing usually sucks. I coach boxing at a couple of MMA gyms. And the boxing students, when they find out it's my last session and I'm now traveling to another part of the country, 
they all drown because now they know they're no longer going to be getting boxing instruction. They're going to be getting MMA boxing instruction. So anytime you're looking at these, like, uh, this system fits everything, uh, a lot of the aspects of that system are going to be uh, substandard. And then if, if it's successful financially, it will be franchised. So then even if the Canadian uh, in Krav Maga instructor from Israel, even if he's a legit badass that's killed people and, and he's trained bodyguards and stuff like that, and he's debriefed commandos, once it gets franchised out, somebody you're talking about somebody with a bachelor's in, uh, in exercise physiology that's never been in a, in a combat situation now instructing you in this. So uh, and anything that's financially successful in the realm of martial arts training, you are going to lack context. So what you want to get out of your martial arts instruction is fundamental methods, how to punch well, how to grapple well, how to handle your weapon. And then you're going to have to do your own research uh, for content. Well, I'll be honest. I mean, th the military obviously has a mystique over somebody who's a civilian going in to teach a martial art. But let's be honest. The military's job is to shoot guns. <laughs> They're not out there you know, kicking you know, the enemy. So the notion that that guy necessarily knows how to fight hand-to-hand -hand better than the guy that grew up in Baltimore or lived it like you did uh, is actually kind of ridiculous. Well, Adam, I will add on to that. It's similarly laughable that the military trigger puller knows how to shoot better than a, a top tier civilian competitive shooter. Right. <laughs> yeah. They don't. I know. They don't, I know. Not, they they don't actually do fight that much. very well. They're taught, they're taught to do something adequately. They're not, uh, Master, I, I don't think Jerry Mikulik was ever in the uh, was ever in the military. I mean, you know, military where snipers come from in the military. They're uh, generally going to be guys with hunting experience. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say that the majority of the guys I know from the military, their description of their job is basically logistics and occasionally going into combat if they have the luck to get assigned to that in, in a lot of their eyes. But it's not heavy, constant fighting. It's basically checking with uh, you know, the officers, making provisions, digging things up, you know, digging trenches, setting up fortifications, and then they get into a firefight. But the majority of their, their combat or their, their, their tour experience, I should say, is very much uh, like a truck driver's, it seems like. The, uh, in the martial arts magazines, I don't know if you still see it because I don't read these things anymore, uh, you would see uh, numerous instructors touting the fact that they instructed the Navy SEALs in hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat, and they did, but they weren't the instructor of the Navy SEALs. The Navy SEAL program did not give a shit about hand-to-hand -hand combat, so if you cared about it as a Navy SEAL, you and your buddies would get together and you would find a martial arts instructor that's not too far from the base uh, where you're stationed and you guys would go on your day off and you would pay him for some lessons and he'd get his picture taken with you and then boom, he's got an advertisement. Uh, he's instructed Navy SEALs. 
because the, the Navy didn't think that it was important enough for their, you know, uh, for their SEALs to actually know how to uh, to do anything with hand-to-hand combat. So I've actually dealt with a number of former military guys who, once they came back to civilian life, uh, found that uh, they wanted to be able to deal uh, with the situation uh, successfully uh, and with the knowledge that they're no longer going to have their assault rifle with them. So James, it's, I, it's not worth it to the military to invest a bunch of money in, in empty hand combat in today's day and age. Right. I, I may have asked you this question in previous episodes, but are you, how familiar are you with Systema? Do you have any comments on that? That's what the, the Russian special forces are, are taught. Yes, I've seen two video, two training videos on it, and I've trained with two guys that have practiced it. And uh, it seems to draw partially from Sambo, which is a Russian form of prize fighting that's also related to Judo, which, again, uh, Sambo uh, in Russia and Judo uh, in America and Japan were both at some point sports and also regarded as uh, something worthwhile to teach your soldiers because it was a jacket fighting art. It taught you how to grab a jacket and throw a person, and that's useful for you know armies of guys wearing jackets. Uh, so I don't know much about Sistema, but uh, I, I, have a, I have a tendency to give a lot of credit to uh, any form of combat coming out of Russia. These guys have dominated boxing. Uh, and a few weight classes for the last 20 years. Um, and their record of their uh, MMA fighters coming out of um, Sambo uh, has been very good. I, I once watched a, uh, a team competition between a Russian Taekwondo team and a Korean Taekwondo team. And uh, Taekwondo is a Korean art. And the Russians beat the shit out of them. So uh, Russian men seem to be very concerned with what works. And uh, the um, the guys that I've worked with, the two guys that have trained in Sistema, uh, they're guys that I trust their judgment. So if there's a legit Sistema guy around you and you want to train with them, uh, you know, I, I would say go for it. Nick, you had a question about uh the the book james had oh yeah i james earlier you mentioned that you were writing about military history what is the subject matter of that book so my uh my umbrella concept was feminine influence in warfare uh it it's known to be greater against uh, it's known to be greater in certain cultures than in other ones so i wanted to track that and uh, I, I ended up uh, breaking through the ceiling of that, and it got too big for one book. So I'm really reframing it as an exploration of uh, Aryan traditions of warfare. And I like the, uh, I like the term Aryan because um, it's closely re- linked to language and not archaeology 
uh, and the archaeological driven uh, academic disciplines in the mid to late 20th century all decried it as a crackpot term. And now we're seeing that language drift matches up very well with DNA drift. And um, the much derided translation of the term Aryan to mean noble. Um, yeah, of course, it's highly likely that it meant something like that. But uh, in uh, pre-civilized terms, and uh, these people out of the grasslands uh, took down every civilization they came into contact with uh, or greatly influenced its military traditions. In pre-civilized term, a nobleman only means one thing, and it means warrior. That's the only way you amount to anything in these societies. So my uh, instinct is that Aryans uh, probably meant war bands. You're, you're probably just talking about people that were calling themselves something like the horse clans or the war bands or the warrior peoples or, or something like that. And um, it, uh, two aspects of uh, you know the Aryan history of warfare has been the domestication of animals and their use in warfare over other types of people. And this includes hunting and not just warfare. And uh, tolerance for... Uh, at least female approval as a concept that bore on warrior traditions, even in areas where, uh, for instance, in ancient Greece, where women uh, would have their own wing in a house and it's, it's a gender segregated society. Uh, still, the approval of the feminine was very important, even in that society. And it was one of the most gender segregated of the Aryan warrior society. So um, I'm down now to a series of four books that'll, uh, the first one should be done in two weeks called uh, Sons of Arius. And I like, I'm using this term that uh, Robert E. Howard used in the beginning of his Conan stories where he talked about his fantasy age being between uh, when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the Sons of Arius. And again, if you look at, uh, the uh, the history of uh, the sky god cults amongst uh, Indo-European invaders of uh, the Balkan Peninsula, for instance, you'll see uh, you'll see the idea that the sky the idea of the sky god gets really caught up with ancestor worship. So, uh, if people were actually calling themselves Aryans back in the day, uh, it, it seems to me very likely that they they might have uh, uh, they might have at least fantasized about an ancestor uh, with that name. The, uh, the, the second title would be uh, uh, Shades of Arius. The third will be Hounds of Arius, which is going to be about all of uh, the uses of animals uh, in warfare and how this was transmitted to other peoples, too. So you have a good example with the Plains Indians of a culture that's heavily influenced by um, European war-making traditions by way of the Spanish and their use of the horse and might be uh, part, well, definitely be partially reflective of what an ancient Aryan society of war bands might have looked like. And the last of the four volumes will be Daughters of Arius, which is going to 
address the original concept I had, which is one, why do the people, why did the peoples that were most successful in waging war tolerate so much shit from their women? Uh, and how do the, uh, the successor nations of these warrior societies, how does it, how does it come about that it looks like, uh, well, these societies are now being torn apart by feminine ideals when these were the most masculine societies in history. In fact, they were so masculine that they didn't fear women. They didn't cage them all up and put them in a harem and hide them somewhere afraid of their impact. Even the Greeks who had separate wings for women in their households, there were some Greek queens, Alexander the Great was even formally adopted by a queen and an empress. Uh, Alexander the Great's mother had a lot of influence over him. You might even say he was a mama's boy. So how do you go from having so much uh, positive uh, influence uh, of, of the feminine and warfare uh, to just having it rip your society apart, um, you know, at the far end of the civilized trajectory? So I'm interested in that. And I've been using literary and historical sources combined to try to work it out. <clears throat> if I could the... speculate on that, James, just for a moment. Sure. I would say that something that is very unique to Western civilization is that you have sexual polarity. You have, rather than look at like the Semitic peoples who would, you know, the, the Orthodox Jews, they, they they hide their women away when they're menstruating or, you know, how the, the their, their cousins, Semites, the Muslims behave. And, and in the West, you have of that fragile and that balance when it's upset has much more devastating results would be my hypothesis. Thank you. I think that one of the more interesting theories I've ever heard on why some of these societies even started moving uh, to the West out of the steppe was actually a, a problem of lack of women or that women were basically pushing them to do it. Uh, I think that some of the uh, the archaeological and DNA analysis has shown that there it was an overwhelming supply of, of young males who uh, basically invaded much of Europe you know, roughly 4,000, 5,000 years ago. And there was a common practice, and it's been found in uh, it's been found in Britain. It's been found particularly in the Iberian Peninsula. It's been found in parts of what's now France, of uh, total eradication of the local male stock to the point where uh, the entire male population in some of these areas was wiped out and put in mass graves. Uh, and the theory is that there, you know, either there was a lack of women, or uh, women, you know, in some way spurned this uh, gradual series of invasions that. Uh, you know, not having uh, the ability to raise children and uh, to have a woman was a primary motivating factor for this migration. It's not, you know, it's not really clear, but one of the other primary sources that people use to relate back to this is that, uh, you know, when the Viking and Norman raids really kicked off uh, sort of at the beginning of the Middle Ages, Something that they noted was that there was a, a large degree, according you know, to historical sources, of female, females in leadership, females, uh, females, I guess you could call them queens or local regents, 
who were uh, encouraging this, who were encouraging, you know, the sacking of Northern England, who were encouraging the sacking of uh, Northern France. Uh, and part of it had to do with probably some kind of female psychology of, uh, you know, taking what others have and bringing back all these precious goods that they didn't have in Scandinavia. Um, but it's not really clear why exactly men were doing this. But what is clear is that there was a female component involved in wanting to leave Scandinavia or wanting to leave the steppes and moving either south, you know, southwards or, or westwards to, for for better land and for uh, better better goods, better things to pillage, better things to bring back and win a mate, or just to find a new mate because you know there was a a severe lack of supply of available mates for for young men in these societies. You can kind of see this today in, uh, in the Syrian migrations. One of the common problems whenever they talk to Syrians or to North Africans or Middle Easterners or Central Asians or uh, you know, even Sub-Saharan Africans is that um, you know there's no women. I can I can't find a wife. I can't find a girlfriend. I can't find I can't have kids. Is that because of polygamy? It's partially because of polygamy, but um, there's an element of, it's an extreme element of this kind of that Pua shit about hypergamy and all that sure. kind of stuff. But it is, you know, there is an element of it that's true, and it's particularly true in these countries mm-hmm. where there's a vast supply of women who basically just hang around and wait for a chance to, you know, have a child or have some kind of relationship with powerful local men or right. powerful national men or people with money. Yeah, they want the sultan. Um, Right, right, and they're encouraged to do this by their families. If you, you know, if you have a daughter, this is the only good thing you can do with her is find a way to, you know, enrich your own family. So you, you know, plead with her to wait around and wait for uh, an opportunity to enrich your family or your clan or your region. And so, uh, a lot of the men who've poured out of these, re- you know, these areas uh, have particularly cited that in their interviews to European officials as oh, I a. As a real problem, not not that they just want to get laid, and that's probably partially true. But the, you know, they really in some areas the it's gotten so extreme that the, the social stability of a lot of these regions has collapsed, and so they they have no real outlet and nothing to do. So this is this is a common theme that women push men to the brink, and then they end up migrating. As men, they don't migrate as a clan; they migrate. You is, know, specifically is this a Sunni Muslim thing? Because I, it's I it's a, yeah it's a Sunni Muslim thing just by the fact that there are so many more Sunni Muslims per capita than there are Shia Muslims or, or Salafi Muslims. Sure, um, it it is it's really just it has more to do with um, social instability. A lot of these places have really fucked up demographics and birth rates, <laughs> and uh, the cultural problems have actually just imploded. That's an understatement, yeah, uh-huh. and uh, they have really no. Uh, permanent outlet now they can't they're not if we or if the european officials really wanted to stop these people they could the the reason that they're in europe is more of just complacence but uh in five you know four thousand bc when you have huge hordes of uh what were basically Aryans swarming across the steppe there was a technological parody in fact there was probably uh, a lack of parody from what some evidence that david reich has published uh, what he calls the battle axe culture. And these people in particular had perfected weapon crafting, and they had perfected horseback riding and horseback technology. So they had an actual advantage, which was sort of rare. There was no parody. They they had the advantage, and they managed to uh, 
basically permanently inundate uh, the gene pool of much of Europe and uh, permanently leave their mark and, and wipe out the male population uh, across the board. This is reflected, I believe, and I'm, I'm using uh, Virgil's Aeneid uh, to illustrate this uh, as the, the thread that's going to connect these four books and their component parts together. This is reflected in the ancient epics and the figures of Achilles, Odysseus, even back to Gilgamesh, and particularly Aeneas. Okay. Uh, if you look at the uh, Aeneid, it is a migratory epic. Uh, the Argonautica, the story of Jason and the Argus, Argonauts, that's a, a highly metaphorical uh, treatment of a people's migration. And there are a lot of aspects of the Argonautica that have to do with a shipload of men coming across uh, communities run by women. And uh, you get this as far back as the Epic of Gilgamesh, too. So, uh, well, it even shows up in, uh, well, obviously, Achilles and the Myrmidons are basically uh, a group of homeless men. They have no real, I mean, technically, I think that they were, they were Macedonian, but they had, um, they were basically outcasts and they had no real uh, social stability. They had no permanent foothold in their, their own territory. So they went around and be, they became soldiers for hire. And, you know, that's how they, they, the story of Achilles intertwines with, uh, with the story of Agamemnon and um, Menelaus and all these characters who are basically you know, throwing their entire Mediterranean empire to the wind over some kind of uh, petty uh, romance between Helen of Troy and um, Prince Paris, I believe. Um, yes. Which is another interesting thing that, like, you know, the greatest, the greatest epic in, in literature that's inspired most epics after it is basically about a woman leading to mass slaughter and huge, uh, you know, naval invasions over just avenging honor because of, you know, this really horrific thing she's done. See this pop up again later with the troubadours and the chivalric poems. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. You know, you do wonder how much of this probably was based on real experiences. I mean, the the story of uh, of the Iliad and the Odyssey are dubious at best. You know, but what we do know is that there were these kind of battles fought, and these these honors were taken very seriously, extremely seriously, and in a way that I think most people couldn't understand now. Um, but you have to remember that you didn't have a lot. You had your land, maybe you had some holdings, you had titles, and you had uh, the honor of you know, uh, a obedient wife. You didn't have to, you didn't want to have to deal with this massive public embarrassment, especially if you were in a leadership position of having your wife run off with uh, not only someone else, but with a, like a regional rival. It was an absolute uh, catastrophe for the political scene in Greece to, you know, have the one of the most prominent members of this generally connected family that's running all these important states from you know the shores of what's now southern France to parts of Anatolia you know lose his wife in in like a comical cuckolding story uh, 
and you know, I don't really know why Homer decided to write about this particularly, but it is a theme that pops up over and over again. Again, you mentioned the Aeneid, and it pops over again in medieval tales, like what Nick is talking about. And I think that a lot of these authors are trying to get a point across that, you know, if you allow women to dictate the terms in society, a lot of people are going to die. They're going to destroy the social fabric, um, either with incompetence or um, they're sort of petty actions that lead to huge amounts of men having to kill each other uh, just for the reason of defending their honor and for uh, political alliances and everything else. I think that's probably one of the biggest themes you can get from the classics is that you cannot trust women, that they will you know, cause huge amounts, thousands and thousands of people to die horribly. And you'll have to undertake these huge migrations and <clears throat> huge epic tales uh, because of them after thousands of people have died. So I'm listening to this, Hans, and I'm just imagining I would never do this at this point in my life, but repeating any of this to a woman and she's, she's going to you know, throw, throw a dinner plate at you. Um, so but, well, I but, think but, this is why there's been a push to... There's been a push by people like Mark Zuckerberg's sister and others to um, Randy uh, to, to uh -huh. gloss over to gloss yeah. over the, the classics. Yeah, to justify um, them. Yeah, and it's for it's because of themes like this. I mean, there's no way you can, as an adult with a brainstem, can read um, the the Homeric tales, the Aeneid, uh, and perhaps do you know some light historical reading on the re, you know so the suspected reasons for major invasions and migrations, uh, particularly in, in the European theater. Uh, there's no way you can read all of that and not come to the conclusion that there's a very particular female element behind all of it. Mm -hmm. So I, I struggle with this personally because it's I go back and forth between. It, embracing the notion that we need to kind of enforce monogamy with the alternative of what we have kind of now, which is basically an oversupply of single men fighting each other for access to, to women who are basically looking for the top dogs. And I, I wonder from an evolutionary perspective, what results in a better long term civilization? I, I don't know exactly and it's it's pointless to bring this up to, as I said, women because they'll just they'll react to it emotionally. I've 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 encountered a couple that don't get angry at this sort of discussion, but it it just leads me to think that look, guys, we have to either figure it out on our own, get power collectively, which guys are not great at. We usually end up fighting each other over access to women, you know, historically, uh, or we just need to be wiped out in a war, which is also what happens historically. I don't know if there's any way out of this. I mean, reading Hartiste, you know, on Gab these days, I mean, it's basically like the same stuff. And I think he's great, but it, it's just, there's no real solution here. It's what I'm looking for. And it's like, okay, if there's, there's like religious people who are like want to impose like, you know, the religious orders. And then there are people who want to have like white Sharia, which is bizarre beyond, you know, discussion in, in my opinion. But I, I don't know. I don't know what you guys think we, we should do, if anything. Uh, the themes, uh, the basic themes that are in those Homeric epics, and all the way down to the life of Arthur, uh, of Arthur uh, by Maori, uh, 
the themes that you can find in the earliest epic, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, that uh, that really stick out, that get beyond the the migration uh, theme, which seems to be uh, in the forefront of uh, the latter uh, epics in the Greco-Roman world, is fear of the forest, uh, the uh, the malefic nature of the goddess. Okay, so not just the woman as a traitor, but the feminine idea of society embodied in civilization as opposed to the idea of society embodied in a war band and brotherhood which you have between um, Gilgamesh and Enkidu and uh, his uh, Gilgamesh's brother his adopted brother which was originally designed by the gods to be his rival is taken from him by the gods because they they defied the demon of the forest, and they uh, also stood up against the goddess, the, the concept of the goddess. So uh, I would, uh, I would. This is why what I'm using to examine this is the, the epic poetry, and also uh, looking at non-Aryan societies that we have a better view on from other cultures later. Uh, the Mongols, the Zulus, the Iroquois, the Crow, and the Blackfeet, which are warrior societies, they had a high level of female influence in them in relatively recent times compared to what I'm looking at in European origins and just trying to draw the threads together. But that, uh, the idea of the goddess, of you see it, it it's strongest in the Aeneid. Um, with uh, with Juno, the mother of the gods, should be Hera, uh, specifically cursing this warrior and his people, trying to kill them even by taking over uh, areas of life that are uh, supposed to be the provinces of other gods. Uh, the idea of uh, the goddess, which is civilization and the settled existence, uh, corroding the morality of the men who were formerly together in some sort of society. Uh, I would say if there's a modern answer that comes from these sources, it would be the idea of masculine society that's, uh, that's not simply embodied as like a law enforcement or a patriarchal arm of a goddess civilization. Okay, the idea that, uh, that you had of, uh, of masculine societies that transcended nations in the past where you would have groups of uh, fighters and philosophers that would actually uh, have networks that weren't embodied in a single community, okay, that could squash them. And even the Native Americans had this uh, to a certain extent. And you would have, uh, this was the idea of the taboo man that they had in Polynesia. So, uh, I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a big subject. Uh, people like Jack London and Robert E. Howard explore it a lot in their fiction, and it's uh, it's preeminent in, in in all these ancient epics, all the way up to the uh, Middle Ages. Well, there's um, Alexander the Great's mother was, yeah. None. Some of what I think, or a lot of a lot of what was written about Alexander the Great is probably true. 
But I've always wondered if, if a great deal of the, the the early classic writings on him, especially in the Roman era, um, particularly on his mother, were and, and the women that he encountered were you know all had this similar theme, and that um, none of them really had his best interests at heart. You know, they all wanted something out of him, and his mother was particularly cruel. Uh, you know, all indications point to his mother basically having his father assassinated. Um, oh, you know, partially due to some kind of ethnic rivalry going back to uh, a rivalry between the kingdom of Epirus and uh, and Macedonia, but also due to some uh, quarrel over uh, whether Alexander ought to be king already, and you know he ought to rule. But this would then immediately make uh, Alexander the Great's mother queen regent, and she would be able to dispose of. The love children of um, of Philip, who was Alexander's father, uh, and this is a theme that shows up in the stories of Hera. Hera goes around basically murdering and torturing um, the love children and the lovers of Zeus. Zeus was a particularly degenerate weirdo who uh, would take animal forms and impregnate women and do all sorts of bizarre stuff. Um, but Hera was even more sadistic in the, you know, not just, it wasn't just jealousy, it was fear of competition, it was fear of being uh, let go of, of losing her title. Uh, and it was always justified in these tales as, as Hera would, would rationalize it and try to make this case to Zeus that it was for the, you know, for the stability of Olympus and for the stability of, um, stability of their kingdom and the stability of Greece that these problems be put down. Uh, but this shows up with uh, one of Alexander's wives. He, uh, he took a, like a Bactrian, Rosanna, Rox, Roxana. He took a Bactrian wife. And she decided to do similar things. Uh, as, soon as, uh, she, as soon as Alexander died, she had his son. And they were the rightful heirs to his throne. Although a lot of Alexander's uh, brother, or not brothers, but his compatriots who he'd known since childhood, um, quickly Squash that. They had no interest in allowing this non-Greek uh, and non-Macedonian to have a say in the functioning of this vast empire. But she immediately started to try and flex her muscles and go after women that Alexander had also slept with, and you know, attack people, for, you know, and, and have them assassinated. It was a common trend in the life of a very real person. Um, and it you know begs the question of what maybe these are convergent themes that just show up in reality and they're just part of life, oh. or you know the classical authors were still trying to get through you know the Roman authors were trying to make this point that you really you really cannot trust these women, and even though they had to embellish a little about the tales of the women that Alexander had been with, they they really felt that it was important uh, to for people to know that uh, women were partially the reason why Alexander did what he did and part of, part of the reason why he died. Uh, there was an author called Hammond who wrote a brief book on Alexander, which I think was only 190-some pages. And he, his idea was just to look at the bare bones of what he did to get a look at him. And it turns out that Alexander was very pious, very religious, and this even included his aspirations to godhood. That was part of the package. And one god that he sacrificed to every time he held sacred festivals, which was often, was Heracles, which we know as Hercules. Heracles, that name means Hera's honor. In other words, 
his existence as a son, as a bastard son of Zeus was uh, a challenge to the honor of the mother of the gods. Uh, and your point about the Romans uh, reworking some of this is really insightful when you keep in mind that the Romans were more tolerant of female authority and female meddling in things than the Greeks were. All right. Uh, despite the fact that the, the patriarch of the family had the authority to, to kill his daughters, he could also kill his sons if he wanted to. Uh, so I think you're right on there. And uh, Alexander's uh, piety in reference to, uh, to Heracles is, is telling on that account. And the, uh, it, you can see this with Odysseus, with, with the Sirens and Circe, and particularly with Jason and the Argonauts and the Argonautica, and uh, the tension between Aeneas and Dido. And remember, Dido is the queen that founded Carthage, which is the enemy of Rome. And Aeneas is, is supposed to be the, the founder, uh, the founder of the Roman people, according to Virgil. <laughs> Sorry about that. This will go for about thirty seconds. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> well. I guess we'll we'll uh we're, I guess we're living in a canine dominated society. I don't know what to call it, but yeah. Yeah, my hosts have a couple of uh, hyperallergenic dogs that are kind of uh, yeah hypervocal to. Yeah, I've never I've never really bought that the Romans were uh, the uh, like these. Uh, totally honest and uh, straightforward historians. You know, they, they embellished, I think, just as much as the Greeks did. Their their proclivity was much more towards embellishing uh, facts and not mentioning, um, you know, their their deities and not mentioning mysticism as a, as a force that's, you know, working its way through these events. The Greeks, you know, What's known is that a lot of a lot of these important Greek writers and philosophers basically uh, regarded a lot of this as just total bullshit. But they kept up the appearances for political purposes and for you know they felt it was better for uh, society in general. Uh, but the Romans never really went that way. You know the Romans always felt it was you know Tacitus writing ten pages uh, embellishing details that may or may not have been true about a particular Germanic tribe. Is a very different thing from uh, you know Homer give, basically giving dialogue between gods as part of the narrative, as part of a factual narrative, like as if he's listening into this conversation. Uh, I think that their their general purpose was always to, you know domestic propaganda. You know, it was always about enforcing uh, local custom and local rule and local idea about how to think of the world and and how to how to portray it um, because Roman generals in particular wrote profusely and they, they were really um, historians on the side and they saw it as their mission to maintain a Roman uh, foreign policy viewpoint. It's very much similar to today and that there's a lot of embellishments that aren't totally fantastical, but you can definitely tell are, are, are not only embellished, but you know, a little paradoxical and, and a little strange 
Um, and the argument is that, well, this is for crafting a narrative, and a narrative is what foreign policy is all about. It was, it was interesting that they chose to reinforce this theme above all else, this, this woman theme. Um, and I really have never understood why it was such a big deal to them, especially when you're saying that you know, women in Rome had a very different lifestyle than women in ancient Greece. But for whatever reason, the Romans felt it was very important to uh, never stop emphasizing this theme uh, in their teachings, wow. in their histories, and in their biographies, and so on. The Romans knocked down a rotting civilization. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of modern people look at Imperial Rome and how it deteriorated, but the Romans had a real-time view of the end of the Hellenistic Age, and they went and kicked in the door of that whole rotten structure, and they took it over. So, uh, and they also had access to uh, stories like Herodotus's account of the Battle of Thermopylae, and then they see what's left. Um, you, know, you know, this really sterile uh, society that seems to be becoming more feminine before them, and they go and they take it over. I think it's, uh, it's something similar to what happens to the Mongols um, being influenced and assimilated by the Chinese. Uh, and other Asiatic civilizations that they conquer, where uh, the feminization, the feminizing influence of the civilization, how even men will start to have more feminine concerns in a civilized setting, will eventually rot the warrior core out of your people. So a lot of these, uh, a lot of this mythological work could actually have to do with ideas of inoculating. Um, the men in the society against the process. For instance, the Roman idea that a young man needed to go and watch men die and suffer without complaining in the arena. You know, this was considered very important to be able to witness this and to see that even the slave that we captured in Thrace, he can die with honor, so you can die with honor. Uh, that Putting that in the core of your civilization, uh, could be similar to Alexander making sure he always sacrificed to Heracles, even though he wasn't even an Olympian. He wasn't even one of the big 12. Uh, and there could be a similar reason why the Romans stressed gladiatorial combat as uh, an observatory ritual on the part of, uh, of the men. Maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, some current events that have been affecting all of us on the call, unless you guys had more on the uh, ancient civilizations topic. <laughs> no. Uh, oh, let's have really been peeking out on this. <laughs> no, no, it's great. That's what's, what, what we come here for. So um, uh, you want to you talk about O'Keefe and the YouTube stuff? Well, just... In general, um, we've just been seeing upfront and personal, and obviously we've known about this for years, but it's been affecting uh, people we know uh, and us uh, much more directly recently with all the deplatforming going on and the censorship on these tech platforms owned by the Silicon Valley giants. Uh, you guys, you just, James, you just spoke to the guys in Rebel Yell and they lost their WordPress account. Uh, they had some worse things happen to them recently. Uh, so it just, it just underscores 
and we're not again. I mean, it's it's so ridiculous that this this is even a thing, but we're just talking, for God's sakes. You know, it's it's protected ostensibly by the Constitution, and we're not doing anything illegal. But as well, I well, it does beg a question. To, yeah, which God, James? Does do you think that Mark Zuckerberg makes his sacrifices to? Mark Zuckerberg, God of Mars. I think he has a jacket. Um, I heard this rumor that he owns a jacket with the Illuminati pyramid in, in like in whatever the woven into the interior of it. Yeah, uh, it's like a pseudo Star of David. We we can put a picture on our like a slideshow. It was really creepy. It, he was doing an interview, and this was many many years ago. This is when Facebook really started to take off. Um, and this is right when he this is right before he stopped doing these kind of interviews and, and Q and A's because he looked totally strange to people. Um, but he he, he was, actually went to uh, speech coaching classes to get better at it, and I suppose he has, but he's still he's still a friggin' robot. I mean, so he the story is that basically he was he was doing he was on stage and you know on the stage for these Q and A events and these yeah. talks. You have a hundred lights pointing at you, and there's just heat emanating from all the electronics surrounding you, and you're nervous. And so he's wearing like a thick hoodie and jeans, and he's with, visibly with the, with the with the speedo sandals still. This is right. like his and first he, look, and he's visibly sweating because he's probably just he's not only I think he's kind of a, a anxious weirdo, but. Clearly, you're hot. You're overheated. It's, you shouldn't be wearing a fucking thick wool sweater. Um, but he decides to. And over the course of the interview, the, the two interviewers asked him kind of jokingly, do you want to take that off? You look kind of hot. And he kind of would be effusive and say no. And then eventually he took it off. And he tried to take it off in a very subtle way where you couldn't see the inside of it, but he screwed up. And they asked, what is that? And it... <laughs> the look on his face when they ask, what is that, is priceless because it's just this huge stomach-sinking moment in his mind where, oh, God, now I have to show this. And it's like a weird, um, almost Star of David pentagram thing connecting different the different uh, engineering and, and tech philosophies that go into making Facebook. Oh, my God. It's totally bizarre. It, it's, one of the, it's one of the most surreal things to see. This is what this guy wears around all day inside of his, uh, his little hoodie. Now, I, I think Alex Jones is largely a charlatan today, but he was right when he would describe the crap that the globalists are into. I mean, it's astonishing. Like It's like this skull and bones crap that they all go through. Uh, and it, it just boggles my mind that people don't have a degree of self-respect. They're like, "No, I'm not wearing that crap." What are you talking about? I guess that means you just you're not in the club. But it's uh, it's, it's amazing to me. So I'm looking at it, and it literally is the Star of David, and uh, it has graph stream plus one Facebook platform making the world open and connected. Yeah, right. Twenty, yeah, just like George Soros. Right. It, <laughs> it, I mean, it's literally a, a open star and connected David for with, conquest with a circle with a circle going through it. Um, You'll have to send this to me, Hans. I, I yeah, if I can find it. But yeah, I think people like this, these infotech guys, I think they are actually aspiring deities. Um, there was a fellow named Gene Wolf that wrote a, um, uh, a four 
four novel set called The Whitney of the Long Sun about a generation ship from Earth to a far star system. And the creators of this actually uploaded their consciousness into the mainframe computer and became the gods of the people in the generation ship. And I actually think that he was predicting this type of behavior by people who uh, would come to lead an information-based society, that they would actually seek godhood. Uh, every bit as much as Alexander the Great did, but by duplicitous and manipulative means rather than by heroic means. Well, it's not only is there a lack of heroism, you know, I, I like to think of a lot of these guys in comparison to the to the robber barons, the the evil old robber barons, as we're told uh, from the from the Gilded Age and from the beginning of the Progressive Era. And the fundamental difference between Carnegie, let's say, or Rockefeller and Mark Zuckerberg or uh, the weird man child that they have uh, running uh, Alphabet or Google. I mean, I don't even know anymore. The Indian guy. Um, the Sin, difference is yeah, so the, the, the difference is that, yeah, some of these guys started their own companies. Some of them kind of took it, take it over, but um, their investment in the larger public is pathetic and it's duplicitous and it's only focused on enriching themselves and sort of an internal dopamine rush. A lot of the endowments that Carnegie made and a lot of the sacrifices that Carnegie made, maybe there was a dopamine element to it, but none of that really came back to enrich him. Carnegie's setting up a bunch of space observatories all over the country and endowments for the arts. How That didn't benefit him at all. Well, it was a, it's his it was a waste of, It's his right, reputation. But it, it didn't. It didn't immediately enrich him, and it didn't immediately affect his company, which is what I think a lot of the current charitable activity is all about, or the giving back is all about. Um, there's no element to, or there's no effort to craft, a, you know, a national culture, to craft a national industrial policy, yeah. to work with the other oligarchs, and to work with government, and to work with labor, and work with everyone to achieve good outcomes, to make sure everything's running smoothly. That no one has any problems, no one's wanting for something, and um, that everyone can have a decent life, be enriched, have something going for them. Rockefeller, Morgan, uh, all of these guys. Probably not great people in a lot of the histories that we've done on this oh, show. No, these guys have were, shown that uh, several of these people are, are very bad, uh, or could be, could be construed as very bad. But they actually did try and make a concerted effort to improve everyone's lives around them in this country. It was a different era, and I agree with what you're saying to a point. It's also because I think things have changed. I don't know what these guys could do today, honestly, unless they took a real hard look at their industry as a whole. I mean, my, my critique of Facebook and Facebook in particular, but Google as well and a lot of these info companies is that they don't, employ people they provide a lot of services to billions of people but if you look at the sort of um, relative standing in the community in terms of just direct economic uplift or to use that stupid progressive term but just economic engagement with the population it's very small it's a very elitist group of people and you compare that to the industrial companies of the past and yeah you've got mm -hmm. you know rockefeller 
being a, a, a bastard and basically just trying to destroy all this competition around him. But I mean, the industry he's in employed probably millions of people. I yeah, mean, how many how many people did Rockefeller end up employing? Probably millions through like you think about yeah, it. multipliers, millions and millions of people while he was alive, and then afterwards, millions more, and everything he did to. I mean, Rockefeller was like personally investing at one point in national infrastructure programs. And he was personally investing in building museums and and cities that had never seen anything resembling an art gallery in their history. I mean, whatever you want to say about Rockefeller and the Rockefeller family, bad people, not great, have probably done some damage or a lot of damage in the later years. At that time, and when they were the kings of the castle, when they ran the country— and they were the masters of industry of their era. They sure as hell made an, a concerted effort to give back. And I think a lot of the current generation of, you want to call industrialists or oligarchs, um, are very, very simple-minded people, and they're very, very greedy. And they have no real, um, I think, there's no feeling of that I, I have yeah. a place in this this country. And I'm no, part they, of they feel removed from it. I, they really do. I, I, I knew these guys, uh, you know, when I was in that sort of space uh, in the economy, and they just they they don't care. They don't care about people. They don't. I mean, they 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 say things to because they think it sounds good, and yeah, they have their pet causes, but they're just goofs. I mean, I've just seen. Um, Sergey Brin comes to mind. And you remember that that big leak about the Google uh, powwow after Trump won about how offended you know everybody is about this horrible rise of nationalism. Well, this is exactly what we're talking about. These people, they they don't they they just don't get why somebody who grew up in the United States uh, would feel uncomfortable with all the money, all the power, all the influence flowing to these companies that are founded by foreigners or run by foreigners. They don't get it. They, they think it's offensive. I mean, literally, Sergey Brin says, he, as an immigrant, I'm offended. I'm like, well, fuck you, dude. How many billions do you have? And you, after you cheated on your wife, how many billions do you still have? I mean, I have no empathy for you. And the, the guy, he's, he's a goofball. I mean, if you ever watch him being interviewed, and they don't really do it very often. Uh, Paige is even dorkier. But Brin was, was kind of like a the social guy and he's like cool or something. And he would basically just kind of like organize teams of people. And and that's, that's a skill. Don't get me wrong. That's important. But I remember him being interviewed once about like the Google interview process, like for the the onboarding process for new employees. And some HR woman from Google HR is like interviewing him about how great Google is. And, you know, oh, isn't it, you know, well, tell us about the Google 15. You know, it's like the college 15, like how you gain weight, you know, because all the free free food and all the great stuff Google gives you. Okay. And then he like he he changes like the the direction of the interview suddenly to his shoes. I'm like, what? Uh, First of all, like imagine like Donald Trump, like directing the interview to his shoes. Like, what the hell? You know, and somebody's like, look at the shoes that I just got. Uh, they're moon shoes, aren't they cool? Or aren't they aren't they googly? I'm like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? So this James, guy runs a company. James, is it is it manly if you're a multi billionaire to care about what people think of your shoes? <laughs> if you made billions of dollars, do you oh. really have to care what people think of you? You know, he's got that guy's got something in common with uh, 
you know, nine out of ten hood rats in Baltimore. They'll shoot, <laughs> shoot. <laughs> I, the Air Jordan shoot once, people but, over shoes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've got something to throw at you guys uh, because I've been reading and writing a lot about you know the, the rise and decay of, of empires. So if you have something like America, if you want to look at what your ruling generations look like, first you have your guys who take something that belonged to somebody else. You know the conquerors. You know they impose their will on somebody else, and they they make that something theirs, whether it's the land or or people, whatever. Then you have people like the industrious the industrialists who uh, express their will by building something. And then in the final stages, uh, you got the people that just subvert other people's will by using something. They're just using the stuff that's residual, that's been built up by those other two parts of the process, and they're just using it. They're just, uh, you know, these guys are worms. You think about the when you want to look at the fate of a society, you just look at the character of the people ahead of it. I mean, I might not like what an industrialist does uh, in terms of how he treats other people, but uh, you know, he's a guy that you would fear uh, if you were playing some kind of game with him. If you sat down to uh, to stake all your money on a game of Monopoly with a bastard like uh, Carnegie or Rockefeller, oh, J.P. Morgan cultivated that, that image of himself. <laughs> There, there was um. So he he had a very unattractive nose, first of all, and he would use that to scare people. But one of the things, um, one of the things that he, he was an he ugly had, son of a bitch. You ever like you ever seen the pictures of him? I think the Monopoly Man character is yeah. J.P. Morgan. Oh sure, and they had got, a he, he had, had a, he has the the mono, the uh with the little eyeglass, and right. then he's got the monocle, the yeah. giant mustache, right. and the thick nose that's at least four inches wide across his face, and the top hat and everything. And he's got a fat. He's got like a fat. Fat head and fat face. Well, it's the it's the Horatio it's the Horatio Alger archetype. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he had a painting of commissioned would... of him, and the artist um, like made a mistake or something. Like he was in an armchair, uh, and he was like holding onto the armrest, and it looked like a knife. And the guy was like, "Oh, I'm sorry. Like, do you want me to fix?" I was like, "No, no, no, no. That's good. Keep that in." Yeah. Th- this is like the very call it masculine you can call it warrior whatever but th- this archetype is completely gone i mean these guys are these soft soy boy literally uh i think i saw a van a couple days ago it's, it literally said like soy boy on it i thought it was a joke I, I thought i was in like some kind of dream or something it was very strange but um it's very feminized today i think there's that's actually the a, there's a story when roosevelt uh, who has been accused of actually being a Morgan man, um, but it's sort of it's not really clear how long he was and what he what he really was. But he basically um, started a, 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 an investigation into J.P. Morgan's banks. Um, but J.P. Morgan was under the impression that Teddy Roosevelt was his guy, and you know wasn't going to do anything. And Teddy Roosevelt was always basically saying that he was all bluster and he, he wasn't really interested in going after these large uh, industrial and banking groups. And, but then he started to. And there's an incident where J.B. Morgan, in person, stormed into the Oval Office. He actually walked into the White House, walked through the White House, walked into the Oval Office unannounced, 
busted through the door and started screaming at uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt screamed back, and they almost came to blows. The two of them were like face-to-face and were yelling at each other. And uh, I can't even imagine today someone just storming into the White House, everyone being too scared to stop him. Because the, everyone the White House American, staff would start tweeting about it, and right, I mean, the guy would have to like resign or something because he lost his temper. I mean, it would just right. be, yeah, it, it's ridiculous. At the time, J.P. Morgan was probably one of the most well-known faces in America, certainly in Washington. So everyone knew what he looked like. And as soon as he walked in, no one's going to stand in the way of J.P. Morgan and, and tell him, you can't go in there, sir. And the two had to be pulled apart because they were they literally almost came to blows. Old man Morgan was raising his cane as if he, <laughs> he was going to hit Teddy Roosevelt with it. And Teddy Roosevelt was never really backed down from a fight, you know, started like taking his jacket off and, you know, they almost came, they had to be pulled apart and J.P. Morgan had to be pulled out of the White House, um, kicking and screaming and, you know, talking about he's going to sue him and, he, you know, he's going to fight this in court, all the way to the Supreme Court and just going on and on and on. I can't imagine anyone having that kind of seriousness to them about their business today. I mean, if Google got hit with an antitrust tomorrow, what would be the the real visceral reaction from uh, Sergey Brin? Would he be anything more no, than just no, sort no, of yeah. slightly perturbed and maybe sad and a little effusive about it? Can you imagine Sergey Brin calling out Donald Trump and screaming and you know threatening to beat him to death and all this stuff? Well, it's it's yeah. funny uh, the the contrast and. The, he got made fun of it f- for doing this, but Steve Ballmer at Microsoft was pretty notorious for throwing these kind of guerrilla antics in the, the board suite. And I remember there was a, I read about this, but it was basically, there was a point when Microsoft was, was still trying to take Google on in the search market. And they, they never could. I mean, they, they ended up sort of basically getting, uh, yahoo's sort of market share because yahoo is failing too and they just merged their operations together and they're still like 20 percent, i think but uh at the time like they were they were legitimately trying to crush google because google was obviously the up-and-comer in the industry and it was a big threat to microsoft because their business model was basically like selling cds to people every three years and google was giving away everything for free and it was just like well who the hell are these guys it's just like netscape again and so Balmer was basically just, he was running it after Gates stepped down after the antitrust suit. And Balmer's this big, bald guy. And uh, not an engineer, but, you know, smart. And he went to Harvard, but kind of a salesman. And I remember reading about this, and he was uh, comparing uh, Google to Microsoft. And Google at the time was still run by Eric Schmidt. And Eric Schmidt was uh, formerly from, I forget the name of the company, but it used to be another Silicon Valley company that, kind of went under uh back in the 90s and Balmer was basically literally and I can't remember, can't believe they quoted him in the magazine uh, about this but he basically called Eric Schmidt a pussy and he, he said I'm going to take that guy down you know I think it was what happened was there was a guy who was leaving Microsoft to go work for Google and the guy came in and uh, Balmer summoned him to ask him you know to stay and like what what's the problem and he's like oh well, I'm going to Google and he's like I can't believe you're going to that you know faggot company or whatever he said you know that that <laughs> pussy Eric Schmidt I'm going to take him down and I've taken him down before I mean this type of thing like 
today, like, yeah, you, you can go to jail, you know, for like talking this way to people. I mean, it, I've seen it. I've seen people you get hit with an OSHA lawsuit. It's like it's considered like ridiculous to talk this way. And to me, it's just like this is like a leader basically trying to fight for his his team. Like, I don't get why people get so shocked by it. But anyway, yeah. Well, so, James, what do you think of this, this censorship drive? What do you think that they are trying to achieve here? Is uh, it even is it even going to work? Is my larger question. Uh, how much? I I, I read uh, Uncle Ted's manifesto, the um, uh, a book version of it, and there's a point in there where uh, where he expresses his opinion that uh, a system. Um, dedicated to control is just going to develop its own instinct to ramp up the level of control and it's just going to develop there's going to be a gravity and it's going to keep ramping it up even when it's less threatened than it was before um and i just wonder how much is uh, how much of this is so many people involved and uh in the information aspects of our uh, of our civilization, just have this instinct for control, and that it just it's just going to the gravity is going to go that way, and it's going to express itself. I know they took uh, they stopped hammering me. Uh, I, my site after we talked the last time, I didn't get any more books banned, but my site was taken down a few times. And then as soon as I posted a video about living in uh, Big Tony's garage out in Portland, Oregon, uh, it all stopped. All the harassment and censorship and everything stopped. <laughs> and maybe I was economically where, where I was supposed to be according to this, uh, this manipulative beast control instinct. I don't, I don't know. I, I just wonder how conscious it is and how much it's uh, some sissy upwelling of expressing this anxiety over a lack of control. You know, what we were talking about women before, uh, and I let, uh, I let you in on some women I know that wanted to beat their kids out of frustration, even though they knew it was the wrong thing to do, and they would call me in, but they just, you know, when, when people who were intrinsically weak are in power, uh, you know, sometimes they just get frantically scared.
sometimes it's like someone took a knife, baby, edgy and dull, and cut a six-inch valley through the middle of my skull. At night I wake up with the sheets soaking wet and a freight train running through the middle of my head and leave. 